Trust me, we want to work in his field. And to that end, this evening's study, sermon, on the contrast between Protestant evangelical doctrine and Roman Catholic doctrine. You'll know that it's offered up to the Lord by me as an act of love and obedience. And my purpose for having this two-part series is not to bash anybody, but rather to equip us to work in the field of harvest where there are so many precious Roman Catholic friends and in some cases family members. I told you, and I want to reiterate, that I have many Roman Catholic friends. I cherish and value them, but we are not the same. And uh, I hope that this evening's study, again, will equip you to know what uh, precious Roman Catholics believe and how that differs from what we as uh, Protestant evangelicals believe. We have been halfway through this study, but I intend to review very briefly. But before I do, I'd like to pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that is truth. We pray, Lord, that as it is broken by your spirit that we have sung of early in the service, that we would be uh, taught accurately by the spirit of God the things that will help us to love Roman Catholics and to tell them the good news that uh, the Bible has authority and gives us a grace salvation that one can be sure of. Lord, guide my mouth, guide my heart, guide my mind, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you received a little handout. Um, there are 1.2 billion, billion with a B, uh, Roman Catholics in the world. Uh, 91% of those responding from a survey about religion in the Bahamas uh, said this, that 14% of our countrymen are Roman Catholic, or 377,000 Roman Catholics. And so, um, sorry, that's a total population, 377K, 14% is 53K, 53,000 Roman Catholics, I stand corrected. The first point of difference, and maybe the most foundationary point of difference, is a different authority. The Roman Catholic Church um, elevates church tradition to the same par as Scripture, and in some cases, above the Scriptures. And this is what caused the Roman Catholic monk Martin Luther in the mid-16th century to form the Protestant or the Protesting Reformation. The uh, Protestant stance that we are a part of is that Scripture alone is authoritative, and there are five solas, uh, sola scriptura, Scripture alone, sola fide, faith alone, sola gratia, grace alone, sola Christos, Christ alone, and solo Deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. So that's the fundamental difference when we come to doctrine between the Roman Catholic Church and, and the Protestant Evangelical Church is what is the final authority. We see church tradition as having no part in the final authority of what we believe. The second difference is the Bible. And we pointed out last time that the Roman Catholic Bible has the Protestant recognized 66 books, but they have additional seven books, which they call the Apocrypha, that are tucked historically between the end of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew. These are the 400 silent years that the Protestant would believe there was no further revelation after the prophet Malachi for God's own purpose and reason until uh, Matthew was written by the Holy Spirit. 400 silent years, but our Roman Catholic friends say, no, during those 400 years that God revealed seven books, which are called the Apocrypha. And it is in these seven apocryphal books that our Roman Catholic friends have some doctrines that we do not see in the 66 books, such as purgatory, praying for the dead, the command to use magic, forgiveness of sins by almsgiving, offering money for the sins of the dead. We understand that Scripture 
the canon of Scripture closed at the end of the book of Revelation, and so we do not understand that the apocryphal books are Scripture. That's a difference. The third difference is a different salvation. Uh, the Roman Catholics have a works-based salvation. Uh, seven sacraments are very important to them. Baptism, confirmation, holy communion, confession, marriage, and the holy orders. Seventh, anointing the sick, also called the last rites and extreme unction. We pointed out last time we were in this study that John Paul II had the letter M on his casket to underscore the fact that the Virgin Mary had a very important part in his salvation as he understood it. A different Jesus. We have a different Jesus insofar as the Roman Catholic who knows their theology believes that Mary, the Virgin, is a co-redeemer, a co-redeemer with Christ, a redemptrix in the Latin, a co-redeemer with Christ. They believe that uh, Jesus is often too busy to hear our mundane prayers and not really interested in hearing our prayers unless they're very um, gargantuan and pivotal prayers. And so the Roman Catholic is often told to pray to his mother, the Virgin Mary. She's a co-redemptrix in salvation in their understanding. They believe that Mary never died, but rather was taken whole into heaven. They say there is no biblical support for this, but Pope Pius XII exercised papal infallibility to assert this. They also believe that Virgin Mary is the daughter of God the Father, the mother of God the Son, and the spouse of the Holy Spirit. A fifth difference, a different communion. Our Roman Catholic friends believe in a transubstantiation miracle that takes place every Mass, that the priest can pray the host, the bread, into being the actual body of Christ, and the priest can pray and transubstantiate the wine in the chalice to actually being the body, the blood of Christ, rather, in the cup. And in this sense, uh, Roman Catholic Mass re-crucifies Christ every time it is observed. Now, moving on to new ground, that was all review. Moving on to new ground, we have a different afterlife to Roman Catholics. Uh, the Roman Catholic afterlife is divided into three compartments. They believe in a heaven, they believe in a hell, and they believe in a purgatory. Dr. John MacArthur has said on record that he believes purgatory is the linchpin of the Roman Catholic Church. Why? Because none of us can aspire to the righteousness of God. No Protestant can, and no Catholic can. And so the second chance for the Roman Catholic in their way of belief is that there is a purgatory, a place where the uh, sins that have not fully been paid for are, as it were, eliminated or taken away, often through indulgences by the living relatives of the Catholics who have departed and find themselves in purgatory. And an indulgence, by way of definition, is a wavering of a penance. And a penance is uh, a desire to self-reconcile with God for one's sins. There are many different penance the church prescribes. But, for instance, uh, a penance would be climbing the sacred steps in Rome, which are believed to be the very steps where the Lord Jesus climbed from Pilate's house to go to the cross. And interesting enough, the Roman church has actually excavated those stairs that they believe to be the sacred stairs of Christ, leaving Pilate's uh, chambers to the cross, and moved them 
from Jerusalem uh, to Rome in the Vatican. A person who scales those sacred steps is understood to have a penance of minus seven years in purgatory for the person they do that for. Pope Leo X, 1513 to 1521 was his popery. Pope Leo X began offering indulgences to anybody who donated certain amounts of money to the Roman Catholic Church. Recently, very recently, the Vatican's papal court, which handles pardons for sins, ruled that the contrite Catholic may win indulgences by following Pope Francis' World Day of Prayer tweets on Twitter. That was reported by the Guardian newspaper, British Daily. A different afterlife. Hebrews 9.27 We as evangelical Protestants believe that it is appointed unto man once to die, and then comes the judgment. Hebrews 9 Verse 27, inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. So we just not see the scriptures teaching a second chance at salvation or heaven after we physically die. Also, in 1 John 5, verse 11 and 12, we read that we as Protestant evangelicals based on sola scriptura, the authority of inspired scripture verse, that we have uh, no so salvation based on God, whereas our Roman Catholic friends only have a hope so salvation. And so in 1 John 5, 11 and 12, listen to what God says to anyone who will read it and believe it about a no-so salvation. And this is the witness. This is verse 11 of 1 John 5. And the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. It's um, sad to me when I've shared my faith with my Roman Catholic friends and asked them, do you know that you'll go to heaven? And they always answer, I hope so. Because of God's grace and the tremendous mercy of Jesus Christ and his shed blood, a once-for-all sacrifice, the just for the unjust, we who believe in him and only him have a no-so salvation. A different afterlife. Along these lines, on purgatory from the Roman Catholic Catechism, Purgatory is a purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven, end of quote. So a different afterlife, one that for them includes a purgatory. Seven, a different priesthood. As you know, the Roman Catholics hold to a celibate, a priesthood. A Roman Catholic priest does not marry. He is not allowed to marry. So the priesthood in the Roman Catholic Church is very defined and limited. Uh, No Roman Catholic that I know of would consider themselves a priest of the New Covenant like we do. They would see the celibate priest ordained in the Catholic Church as being the priest of the parish, and all the others are laypeople who are not in any way, shape, or form priests. Yet, 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10 would suggest otherwise. 
1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you, all the believing readers of 1 Peter, the original readers, and by extension us in the 21st century, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. If you know Christ as your personal Savior, you are a priest of the new covenant, the new arrangement that God will declare innocent and justify the believer in Jesus Christ alone, the believer in Jesus Christ's crucifixion for sin and his resurrection from the dead to prove that he paid for sin. If you believe that, you are a priest. That is different than our Roman Catholic friends' beliefs. It's interesting that celibacy has not always been a part of the Roman Catholic priesthood. Um, in the mid-11th century, Pope Gregory VII uh, dictated or prescribed that that would be the case, citing that Christ was celibate. Yes, Jesus was celibate, we agree. Yet, who they deemed to be their first pope, the Apostle Peter, was married. Mark 1.30. Mark 1.30. Now Simon's, as Peter's mother-in-law, was lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to him about her. Peter had a mother-in-law because Peter had a wife. That's a curious thing. Eight, we have a different confession. To the Roman Catholics, confession is important, and we take our hats off to them and agree that confession is important. They see confession as an essential sacrament which means that unless the Roman Catholic is regularly confessing sin to the priest, they are lacking that essential sacrament, so would have to spend time in purgatory. And so they understand that confession about sin is to their priest, their human priest in a confessional. We understand it differently. We understand that confession is regular maintenance on our spiritual sanctification with Christ. That First uh, John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins... He, not the priest, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so uh, confession is important to both the Roman church and the evangelical Protestant church, but for different reasons. The Roman understanding of confession is that it's an essential part of earning salvation. We believe that it's an essential part of having an unbroken fellowship after we've received a grace salvation by faith in Christ. 1 Peter 2.5 is what I quoted. For there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. No human mediator, mediator. You don't have to come to me or any other ordained pastor to confess your sins. And I don't have to go to any one of you to confess my sins. We have one mediator between us and God, the man, Christ Jesus. The Roman church, number nine, has a different head of the church um, because there is such a thing as papal infallibility. In their church, they believe that popes can at certain times when they speak from the chair of Peter, ex-cathedra, 
uh, something, they are infallible. Uh, they cannot make a mistake. And because they have that clause and doctrine, they are really elevating a human pope to be at the same par as God. Are they not to say that he can be infallible? Uh, the Pope is preserved from the possibility of error, they believe, in all virtues of his supreme apostolic authority according to the definition of the Roman Catholic faith, faith or morals. When he speaks to an issue that impinges upon Roman Catholic faith and morals, from Peter's chair, ex cathedra, he is speaking as God infallibly. We don't believe that. Ephesians 1 22. Ephesians 1.22 says, And he, God the Father, puts all things in subjection under his feet, Christ's feet, and gave him, Christ, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The head of our church, the only infallible Person is God the Son, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit. Colossians 1.18 throws further light on how we understand the head of the church. Colossians 1, verse 18. Jesus, he, is also head of the body of the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. The head of the church worldwide in the understanding of the Protestant evangelical is Jesus. The tenth difference. We have a different repentance. In the Roman Catholic system, penance, as I've cited before, or a self-work to reconcile oneself to God is part of legitimate and essential repentance. Penance. Penance looks different depending on what the priest prescribes. It could be climbing those sacred steps at the Vatican that were moved from the Via Della Rosa in Jerusalem. It could be saying the rosary a certain number of times. It could be three Hail Marys, one our God our Father, some kind of self-denial, abstinence from meat, possibly others. They would pray in their Hail Mary prayer that could be prescribed as a part of their repentance for sin. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. A different repentance. Romans 3, verse 4. Romans 3, verse 4, shows a much different repentance. Romans 3, verse 4, verse 4, May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest justify in thy words and mightest prevail when thou art judged. This is giving a ground of authority for the Scriptures in all matters, but particularly in this case, to do with repentance. The preceding verses to verse 4 are basically saying that the covenants of God were unconditional with the Jewish nation. The only covenant that God struck with the Jews in the Old Testament that was conditional was the Mosaic law, the law. God said to the Jew about the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments being the flagship 
uh, centerpiece of the law, but there was much more law that they were given, was that if you obey the law, I will bless you as Jews. If you disobey the law, law, I will curse you. That was the only conditional covenant in the Old Testament. So this verse is saying if a Jew falls into unbelief, will that nullify all the promises of God? And the character of God is called upon and cited as that will not be the case. And then Romans 4, verse 5 on this same thing. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. We understand that the Really, the part that repentance plays in salvation is that we change our mind about Christ so that it changes our behavior about Christ and we start trusting him and only him to be our justifier from our sins. That's the evangelical Protestant understanding of uh, repentance. Excuse me. Number 11, a different view of sins. The Roman Catholic Church has two categories of sin that they understand. First is mortal sin. Mortal sin is the breaking of one of the Ten Commandments with the full knowledge and deliberate consent. As a Roman Catholic, if you break one of the Ten Commandments fully knowing that you do and deliberately choosing to do so, you have made a mortal sin. And a mortal sin, in their understanding, requires the sacrament of reconciliation. Penance, either on earth, if you do enough penance on earth as judged by the church, then you go to heaven. If you don't do enough penance for your mortal sins on earth as deemed by the church, then you must go to purgatory to do more penance to deal with those mortal sins. That's mortal sins, breaking of one of the Ten Commandments with full knowledge and deliberate consent. Venial sins, different category, are any other sin which is not a mortal sin. It could be any moral disorder. And it is repairable by charity, good works. Catholics believe that venial sins, because they're not mortal sins, are repairable by self-effort and good works. They believe that venial sins not dealt with lessen the love of God in the heart of the venial sinner, making that person less worthy of God's help. I have never been worthy of God's help. On earth, I will never be worthy of God's help. That's why I cling to grace, the good that I don't deserve. Romans 3.23, you know it. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No reference to mortal or venial sins. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Death in Scripture is separation. Physical death is a separation of the body from the soul and spirit. When you go to the funeral home to pay your respects, the body is in the casket and the soul and spirit are no longer in the body. That's physical death, a paycheck for being a sinner as a race. The other paycheck for being a sinner, the wages of sin is death, is spiritual death. We meet people every day who are spiritually dead, but they look physically alive. Spiritual death is the separation of an individual from a meaningful relationship with God because they've never come to Christ for salvation. For the wages of sin is death, physical death, spiritual death, and the last paycheck of being a sinner is eternal death. The the resurrected body, soul, and spirit in a unity being banished from God's presence in a literal hell. 
Those are the three aspects of the paycheck for being a sinner that we all are sinners. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so whether we're Roman Catholic or whether we're Protestant, we are sinners, all of us. And when we come into Christ and Christ alone, the grace of God washes us, the blood of Christ washes us, and we are acceptable in the beloved. A different, this is the last one, a different view of depravity. Depravity is the doctrine the Bible teaches that a person, excuse me, a person who is not yet in Christ for salvation is as bad off before God as they possibly can be. Listen, that's careful wording. Someone not yet saved is in a state of being as bad off before God as they possibly can be. You say to me, yes, but there's an unsaved person in my service club who gives thousands of dollars a year to feed the hungry in Nassau. And I say, good, wonderful. But he stands as bad off as he possibly can be before God without Christ. People who are depraved can do good things. But they're as bad off before God as they possibly can be. That is Protestant view of depravity. We understand that when we're born, we are born depraved. That's why we never have to teach our children to say to us, no. You never have to teach your child to say, no. They assert their will. They don't want your authority at some point as they're growing up. The Roman Catholic Church has a different view of depravity. They believe that the Virgin Mary's Mary's immaculate conception, they believe that she herself was conceived by normal biological means, but her soul was acted upon by God to keep her immaculate at the time of her conception. Thus, they believe that the Virgin Mary was sinless in her life. We don't believe that anyone was sinless in their life except Jesus. A different view of depravity. And it's interesting that in Luke chapter 1 in the Magnificat, when the Virgin Mary was told by the angel that she would bear the Son of God as a miracle because she would be a medical virgin, in the Magnificat, in Luke 1, listen, verse 46 And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Why does a sinless individual need a Savior? The answer is a sinless person doesn't need a Savior. But she understood, although she was chosen of God, to bear the Son of God as a miracle, as a medical virgin, she understood that she needed God to be her Savior from sin. All right. These are the differences I want to highlight. And I want you to know that I do this not to bash any Roman Catholic, 
I believe there are some Roman Catholics that are trusting Christ alone for salvation despite what their church teaches. But in doing that, they're going against the flow of the church. So can a Roman Catholic be born again as we are born again? Yes. But in spite of the Roman Catholic Church and not because of it. Now, I want to share with you, the whole purpose of doing this is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry, to let down our nets with precious Roman Catholic people. That's why I'm doing this. What is a way to help a Roman Catholic person to understand that saving faith is in Christ alone? I believe you can do that with three circles. Thank you. A W circle for good works, a Christ plus W circle for Christ plus good works, and a C circle for only Christ. These circles are answering the question you ask of anybody you're sharing your faith with, with what is going to make you right with God? What is going to make you right with God? And then we draw these circles. And usually anybody I do this with says, well, I've never really thought about it. And then I say, understand that it's coming right out of left field, out of the blue. But I'm asking you, what are you trusting to get you right with God? And I can wait, take your time, and I'll wait. And eventually they'll pick a circle. And usually, nine times out of ten, the Roman Catholic person I'm sharing this with picks the middle circle, Christ plus works, because that's what the church teaches. Christ plus works. So what I do is I thank them for being honest with me and thinking it through. And I say to them, may I go through these three circles with you to show you how I believe someone is made right with God? And they usually say yes. And I say, well, the W circle is the good works circle. People in the W circle believe that their good works will get them right with God as they understand God. And every world religion except biblical Christianity puts you in the W circle. Works. And I quote Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And I point out to them that God is clear that no one will earn heaven by their good works because we would be prone to boast in heaven if we could. And then I take them to Isaiah, Isaiah 64, verse 6. This one's a jolter. Isaiah 64, verse 6. For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. God says that before Christ, all the good works that we would do, thinking that we might be able to work our way to nirvana, paradise, whatever the religion espouses, all of those good works and meritorious deeds that the other religions prescribe are like a filthy garment to God. I will not go into detail what the Hebrew means on a filthy garment, but it's very graphic. So the W circle is not the circle to be in. And then I look to the friend I'm sharing with, and I say, but you didn't pick the W circle. You picked the C plus W circle. You picked the circle that you're going to bank on what Jesus did on the cross and add it to your good works and hope that that will make you right with God. Is that correct? And they will say yes. And then I will say, well, the situation is that when the Lord Jesus died on the cross, the last thing he said, we ought to give first importance. 
And the last thing that Jesus said, recorded in John 11.30, is it is finished. It's finished. The payment for anyone's sin is finished. Finished. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing should be added to it. And so when Jesus said it's finished, it's finished. It was a commercial term, uh, paid in full, on an invoice you owed, paid in full. And then I usually take them to Titus, Titus 3, verses 5 through 7. Titus 3, verses 5 through 7. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. These verses are teaching that justification, being declared innocent by the judge of heaven, is based on the finished work of Christ, on the mercy of God, of the washing of regeneration by the Holy Spirit. It's not C plus W. Then I usually share, I said, if I was a very materially wealthy person and you needed a car and you couldn't get a car no matter what kind of car, and I went down to one of the car lots here in Nassau and I purchased a Cadillac Escalade 2015, paid cash, bought it, drove to your home with the title, and the insurance paid up, knocked on your door and said, you know, I know you need a car, and uh, God has blessed me, and I brought you a car. It's paid for in full. Here's the title in your name. Uh, Drive it in good health. To God be the glory. You would not go back to your bedroom, pull out your purse, and hand me a $100 bill and say, let me help you pay for it. It would be an insult because the gift's magnitude is far greater than $100. When we try to add good works to Christ's finished work, we are trying to give God a $100 bill for an infinitely valued gift. And so I would gently say that is not the biblical circle to be in. But let's move to the Christ alone circle. Christ alone circle, Jesus was very clear when he said, In John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus was either in error and he knew it, so he was a liar, or he thought that was true and it was not true, then he was a lunatic, or he is Lord. He is Lord, he is risen from the dead, and he is Lord. He said it because it was true. It is still true. It will always be true. Jesus said, I am the way, not a way. The truth, not a truth. The life, not a life. To be right with God is to be right with Christ by faith. And then 1 John 5, 11 and 12, which I've read with you earlier tonight. A no-so salvation, remember? Not a hope so salvation. That's not spiritual pride. That's not arrogance. That's taking God at his word. 1 John 5, 
11 and 12. And this, and the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He who has the son has the life. He who does not have the son of God does not have the life. How much more plain could it be? I offer you this teaching so that you will be equipped to love Catholics to Christ, to share your faith, understanding where they're coming from. Not every Roman Catholic understands the papal declarations or all that I've shared tonight. I know that. But you can use this as you see fit, as the Spirit of God leads you, that you might share your faith in Christ as the, the way to forgiveness and a home in heaven with some being informed. Don't bash anybody. Love everybody. But love them enough to tell them the truth, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for your word. We thank you for a finished salvation. We thank you for a sure standing as we trust you alone. We pray, Lord, that as we go home to our homes and to our lives this week, that we would love people, all people, and that we would love Roman Catholics in an unusual way because of what we have learned about the bondage they find themselves in. Lord, we ask this, that you would be glorified, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for enduring a lot of heat tonight. I give you a lot of credit. God bless you as you go and serve him.